0: This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from U.S. RSE, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and I'm so excited for today's episode because we have a guest that you know well, my co-host for the RSC Stories podcast in 2020, who now is the producer and host of the Code for Thought podcast. It's the soft spoken and lovely Peter Schmidt.
1: (laughs) That's a a grand opening. Thanks very much, Vanessa. I'm very excited to talk to you.
0: (laughs) So I do want to be a bit more formal. Peter is a senior research software engineer at the University College London, and he joined our community after having worked in the private sector for almost 20 years. So Peter, Mm -hmm. I'll say again, welcome to RSC Stories. We are so excited to have you.
1: Well, I'm very excited to be here again, actually. It's great to see you again and hear you again, Vanessa. It's, it's been a while, pandemic-wise and not otherwise, but we'll probably talk about it a little bit later.
0: Definitely. I'm particularly interested in your background because I think Mm -hmm. I remember it might have started in research and then you had this long experience in the private sector, which I think many of us in academia are just really interested to know about. And now you're sort of back to your research roots and playing a really large role in our community. So do you want to maybe take us back as far as you like and share with us your journey?
1: Oh, well, definitely, Vanessa. It's going to be a little bit of a journey because I'm turning 60 next year. So we're going to go back a while. I did start in university in physics, actually, back in the 1990s when I started my PhD after I did my diploma in Germany. So we didn't have a bachelor's and a master's, so it was a diploma. And I started my PhD in particle physics at an experiment, which was in Switzerland. And which was very exciting, which in fact is also the place where I started to learn programming, because if truth be told, about 60 or 70% of my time I spent programming in Fortran at the time, working on software packages. We also maintained a cluster of computers at the time. So that was a lot of time that I spent my time on. Then I decided to move to London in 1997. I, I was born in Germany, I should add, which you can probably hear from the accent. And the name, certainly. And I used to live in Hamburg and then moved to London to take up a research position again at the hospital, cardiology hospital, in medical imaging. And again, it was mainly computing. It was mainly image processing and reducing noise in images, etc. And after the umpteenth renewal of the temporary contract, I thought, well, if I do software engineering... To the tune of 80% of my time, then I may as well make a career in there and have a permanent job. And that's what I did. So in 2000, I decided to quit and took up a position as a research software engineer, but at Sony. Sony has a broadcasting and professional unit where they do professional equipment, but also a lot of software. And I actually quite liked it. And it was a very interesting job. Thinking back, it probably was one of the best jobs I had in the private sector, And I stayed there for four years. And I only left because it was quite a journey. It was outside London, about 50 miles or 80 kilometers outside London. I decided, you know, one and a half hours commute every day is far too much. So I went back to London and took up a number of different roles in companies. It's probably too long a story. But I finally then ended up in 2013 at a company called Mendeley, which some of you might have heard of. Mendeley used to be a reference manager. That was used by a number of people in uni. And I did the mobile app there. So the iOS app, and then later on the Android app with a team of developers. And uh, Mendeley was part of Elsevier. And I stayed with Elsevier quite a long time. And it's quite interesting how I got to the job at UCL, because incidentally, I wasn't actually looking at a role in the university, or in fact, any other role, because it was, you know, rather late in my career. But a friend of mine pointed out to me, Slack channel, RSE Slack channel, and I had no idea what that is, right. So I joined, and it was quite interesting. And uh, I followed the conversations, I actually joined an HBC meeting at some stage, which I was quite thrilling. And then I suddenly discovered they have a job section too. And I thought, we're looking into this. And there was suddenly this position showing up at the University College in London in 2019 in summer. And I thought, well, this is interesting. And why don't I throw my lot into this and just try it out and see what happens? And I wasn't actually expecting anything because I was out of university for such a long time that I thought, yeah, you know, after such a long time, they're probably not going to even consider me. But actually, I was considered, I was in, invited for interview. And even more surprisingly, they offered me the job. So there you go. And that's how I ended up at UCL in December 2019.
0: That is so funny. You know, I definitely know of Mendeley. I used Mendeley before graduate school. And oh, I don't you? know if it disappeared, or maybe I stopped using it. I know when I started graduate school, Mm -hmm. I was shown a a service called Paper Pile, and I started using that instead. I think a lot of us did use Mendeley, so it's it's a well-known name.
1: I think after it was absorbed in Elsevier, there was a little bit of a negative reaction is probably too strong a word, but Elsevier is quite controversial in the public sector and universities, and you probably know that better than I do, Vanessa, because I think the University of Berkeley dropped out of the subscription and they had a falling out with Elsevier uh, at some stage over the costs. And So people were a little bit hesitant to, su- to subscribe to Mendeley services after it was taken over. But it was good fun while it lasted. <laughs> it's funny you know that, so, so that if you use Mendeley.
0: Indeed, that's the case. I have colleagues that refuse to publish at any Elsevier journal We don't have to go into the reasons for that, but I can see how that would hurt Mendeley. When you compare at a high level working in the private sector to working as a research software engineer, and I suppose you have to kind of pretend that we're not going through this pandemic thing because that obviously Hmm. induces huge changes, but what are sort of the biggest differences in maybe the work, the people, the lifestyle?
1: I had a hunch you might ask that question and I thought about this a long while and it's kind of difficult to answer and it's difficult to answer because it really depends on the organization that you join right so I worked in large organizations such as Sony and Elsevier I worked in startups and depending on which company and organization you join including universities so there's always a different company culture On the surface, actually, it's not that different because ultimately you're developing software, you're in this IT space. It might be tempting to think that it is the bottom line because in the private sector, of course, the company tries to make a profit. Private universities sometimes try to make a profit too, but in the public sector, so like in several countries, they get funded from the public sector. But ultimately, there's a bottom line too. For me, when I think about it, what it boils down to is recognition. What I mean by that is that when a company decides to hire an engineer or a bunch of engineers, right, they put a commitment behind that. They say that we think it's important enough that we fork out some money for it. So there's a recognition of the importance and also the recognition that whatever they do has a direct impact on what the main thrust of our company is, whether it's a software product or a software service directly or whether it's sort of the back-end support that actually makes the whole thing running. If you think, for instance, about a retailer that has an online presence only, they don't have any shops, they sell everything online, right? So obviously the website is important. And it's that kind of recognition that I sometimes miss in the academic sector. And it's funny to say that because, after all, there is such a thing as research software engineering. It's a recognized role now, but it's a recognized role only very recently. I don't know how long you have been in the sector, but I mean, sort of when I started in physics, there was no such role as research software engineering, right? You kind of had to sneak that in and say, well, actually, I do physics. Oh, by the way, I do a little bit of software engineering, too. All of that is quite different to the private sector where there is. You are employed as a software engineer, right? And you earn your salary and there's a career path. And the academic sector that sometimes is missing still is. That manifests itself in a lot of different ways, I find. So like their recognition when scientific results are being made public, right, in papers, for instance, the career prospects that research software engineers have. I talked to people, and I think you did too, in the interviews I remember, where they identify themselves as research software engineers, but their job title actually is something else. And so I think it's that discrepancy that I would hone in, if that makes sense.
0: Indeed, when I started in research before graduate school, I had a very weird title. You know, essentially I was a research assistant Mm. in graduate school. I was sort of masquerading as a researcher, really loving the building and the software engineering part, but really having to kind of jump through the hoops to be a Ph.D., and then after that, I kind of said, I think there's this thing called an academic software developer. And I wrote about it. And I think at some point in maybe 2016, one of my colleagues who was in Europe pointed mm. me to the UK group and he was like, oh, look over here. And I was like, oh, that's fantastic. But what am I going to do about that from like over here? It's not super helpful. And then finally, I think in 2018, sometime in 2019, that's when we we had a group established here and I was like, ah, I can call myself this now because before that I've just been giving Mm -hmm. myself random titles that don't make sense so I I totally see what you're saying about not having that recognition and the title at least until recently and it's super exciting that we're going in that direction. So you started your new role as an RSC. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what the structure of the research software engineering group looks like at the University College London and what kind of projects you're working on?
1: The University College London has a group of research software engineers That is essentially a centralized service. That means that research projects and researchers and primary investigators come to us with ideas of what they want to do. Uh, So we're meeting with them and they talk to us about the kind of software that they need, that they want to develop either with us, if they have, for instance, somebody who's doing something at their end, or they want to completely outsource it to us and say, okay, we're working with you together. So we're doing the science bit, if you like, and you're doing the, the software bit. So that's the kind of work that we organize. I hate to say this because sometimes it has some negative connotations, but it's kind of a consultancy service, if you like, right? So you're getting involved in research projects for the time that they're being funded and the time that the software work is being funded. Having said all that, I mean, temporary is a very relative term because some of these projects are really long-running. Answering your second question, I'm involved in two long-running projects, both of which I find quite interesting. So, one the first is HIV epidemiology. There's a group of epidemiologists at the University College London working with a major hospital in London, the Royal Free, which looks at the potential damage and costs to health services in sub Saharan Africa when it comes to HIV infections and what happens. And they do different kinds of scenario plannings. And that's very interesting work, not least because in my past, I did volunteer for HIV charities, and I did a little bit of work software-wise for HIV charities as well. So that was interesting on a personal level and on a scientific level. And the other one is building a data pipeline, again in life sciences, for sending and processing magnetic resonance imaging images from brain images And trying to have them analyzed through some kind of artificial or machine learning algorithm at the other end. And we're providing the data pipeline between them. And both of them are long running. They're just sort of two or three years. And I find both of them quite rewarding.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. My graduate work was in functional and structural imaging. So I probably know some of the tools you're using. (laughs) (laughs) What originally called you to the idea of hosting a podcast? I'm guessing you had never done this before. And if I remember correctly, I think you approached me and you're like, hey, can I help out? And it was absolutely wonderful. What was that journey like figuring out that you wanted to have that conversation?
1: I've been thinking about it actually for a while, even before I joined UCL, to be frank. But I never really had a particular reason to do any particular show. So there were some very fuzzy ideas. So let me roll back a little bit, right? So the podcasting, I came quite late to it. Podcasts have been around for a while and somebody pointed it out to me and I thought, I wasn't quite sure what this is. What is a podcast anyway? And why would I listen to it? So I listened to a couple of shows that I found very impressive. And I thought, this is, sounds like a lot of fun. And I thought, well, I feel that I'd like to do something like that as well. So scary as it is. But as I said, I didn't really have any concrete ideas at the time at Elsevier. But once I joined UCL, an idea actually came up. So first of all, the idea that a, I'm new, this is very exciting, right? I mean, I'm going back to academia and there suddenly is a, such a thing as a research software engineering group, but also the realization that there isn't a lot of recognition still in the field. As I mentioned earlier, we still get people at university that have never heard of us. I don't know about you if you have the same experience you know oh there's a group of research software engineering oh really why are you never, yeah? and I thought that there's a little bit of public relation to do and I thought it was great that you run the show at the time I think it was already for a year or just about a year and I thought we really need something like this because you know if we don't blow our own home who else will <laughs> and so I was really getting quite excited and I I remember approaching and I remember how nervous I was when I did the first interview. So I think it was, it was Richard Fitzjohn from the Imperial College in London about epidemiology. <laughs> I remember that.
0: Logistically, how challenging was it to make recording and editing a part of your regular life on top of already having an RC role?
1: Oh God. Yeah. That was very challenging. That was very challenging. I mean I was really so naive What it is, what's entailed, as you know. (laughs) Yeah, it's one thing to do the interviews, which you can squeeze in during the day. People were fine with that. But then the preparation and then, of course, the editing. So I don't know about you, but usually for six minutes of editing, I take about an hour, sometimes more. And I had to do this in the evening and over the weekends. And that was the only way that I could get through it. It was quite stressful, actually, because like you, I sort of I tried to do a few episodes in advance so to stack things up so that you have maybe at some stage a little bit more free time <laughs> and to do something else. But I, I found it quite challenging. I don't know how you find that, how you manage that.
0: I also find it challenging and I tend to also edit in sort of evenings and weekends. And it's really kind of something where I have it open on my computer. And then if there's five minutes here, 10 minutes there, I'll edit audio. There would be some weekends where I would just be editing for eight hours to get through an episode. And it, it makes such a difference how someone yeah. speaks. And I think the interesting thing is that there's certain patterns of speech that people have that I never would have noticed until I would be editing their audio. So for example, (laughs) different kinds of verbal tics, there's this thing that people do where they repeat a word (laughs) or a little phrase, Mm -hmm. like a couple of times as they're saying it. And I usually kind of edit that out because it, it doesn't sound as nice as when they don't do that. So, it definitely is a challenge. And I think for me, I had to cut down on the frequency that I released because I said, you know, I want to be able to do this for a longer period of time. And if mm. I'd really try to get interviews and then, you know, get episodes out every two weeks, that's just not feasible. And the other challenge is that I really like doing personal coding projects. And so, all the time editing episodes i'm not working on a personal project so it is a sacrifice in that respect
1: It is a sacrifice, so um, I'm doing a little bit less coding now these days, and luckily I got some agreement that I can spend some time, obviously very limited time, on uh, podcast editing during my working hours, so there's a little bit of a relief there. It is a challenge, and I think we work together, and I think that I hope that, and I think you also invited other hosts in the meantime, and I think that's probably the way forward. It also helps to draw in the community and build a platform for other people to actually have... Their voices heard too, and I hope that we both can achieve that. Actually, with our respective podcast shows, I think the more the merrier is what I'm thinking. The less work for us, <laughs> and opening it up. So I think that's uh, something that I find quite interesting.
0: I totally agree. That definitely is my vision for RSC stories. In practice, mm-hmm. it is very challenging. People tend to just be very busy. So when you present them with this idea of, oh, it's just this many hours and then you have to prepare and you have to edit. I haven't been super successful so far, but I am definitely not giving up yet.
1: No, neither am I. I think we both shouldn't because I think it's good to actually have more than one show. If you think about podcasting, like, for instance, artificial intelligence, there are gazillions shows about this, right? And so I think that having more actually increases the visibility. And I think I definitely want to continue as well. A, it's great fun. I don't know about you, but I meet interesting people. And we probably wouldn't have met without the podcasting. And I wouldn't have met a lot of other people that I enjoy talking to. And I learned a lot of interesting things. And that alone is very rewarding. And I think it's also nice... To hear conversations and say oh i heard this podcast and it's kind of you know that was interesting and you know that is rewarding too well long may it
0: continue totally agree i tend to be more introverted i am most definitely not social i don't go out with people i don't have any desire to do that so i found that the podcast it pushes me beyond my comfortable limits but in a good way because as you said i, mm. I get to talk to people and I also think it will be really good in a couple decades longer. What we're doing is we're recording history of this movement. We're sort of in it so we don't realize how mm-hmm. things are changing and how they might be now versus in five years. But we're going to have this record of those events to- as told by people that live through them. So I, as long as you know the, the internet doesn't blow up and the audio doesn't go away, I think that's probably the coolest thing.
1: Indeed, exactly. And I think it's also interesting to actually go back what people thought about particular aspects, whether it's technical or, you know, concerning the role. You're absolutely right about that.
0: So your podcast, Code for Thought, can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: First of all, I'm very grateful that he gave me this opportunity to host shows on research software engineering stories because that was great. And I thought over the Christmas period or before that, actually, I thought I want to be brave enough and actually create another show, an additional show. And I used this Code for Thought as a vehicle to actually put a lot of stuff in there that may not be directly related to research software engineering. So because it's in this very interesting intersection between pure software, and, but also pure science. And I thought, I would like to try out whether we can talk about the software side of things, and that's interesting, and we can talk about the science bits as well. And that was quite interesting, actually, because I found out that some of the things really didn't really work so well. And I can tell you maybe a bit about later what that might be. Whereas other things and other concepts actually worked a little bit better. So it was, for me, more or less like a laboratory and an experiment that I wanted to do, that I still want to continue, sort of to trying to find out different formats, what works and what doesn't. So yeah, sort of mixing different topics and different themes together that all center around, of course, software and science, but not particularly in one direction. So for instance, I had an episode about Pierre Bourdieu, who I never heard of before, but I went to a talk once and there was a French contractor who talked about it. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting, particularly in the context of software engineering teams. For me, it's it's kind of an experiment. I try to try things out and see how they work and where they fall. And so far, it's been doing okay, I think. If you do not have the marketing force of people who do this professionally behind you, then of course it's a slow increase. But I think both RSE Stories and both Code for Thoughts podcast, I think they're doing reasonably well, given the fact that we more or less advertise only on Twitter and RSE Slack channels. I'm quite happy that actually sort of things are gradually growing for both of us.
0: The way that I sometimes think about it is that even if the listener base is fairly small, if there is just one student out there, you know, I I think back to my Mm. experience in graduate school, and it was so lonely being this different person and feeling essentially like an imposter. So if there's just one student out there that listens to a podcast episode, and they say, wow, this is what I want to do. I am not an imposter. I am not alone. I think our podcasts have impact. I don't want to say that it's like a low bar, like I'm good with just a tiny amount of listeners, but I kind of am because I imagine that these stories are going to be valuable for years to come. You know, all the time, people that are younger are going to discover this idea of research software engineering. And it seems very natural that they'll discover code for thought and they'll discover research software engineering stories. And then they'll listen to these stories and they'll be able to either see themselves in a story. So like the training or the background, or they'll see someone that has taken a path that they say, huh, that sounds like a path that I would be interested to do. I think the value sort of trickles across time, if that makes Mm any sense. I think we're both doing great personally.
1: Yeah, I think you're spot on, Vanessa. I think this is a very good point, a very important one, because I think that if there's one person that actually realizes that actually there is something like that out there that I want to do, and there's a name for it, and there might even be a job for it, but I think then, then there's a job very well done. And I think we're getting, maybe getting a little bit sidelined by the fact that when people talk about podcasts, they talk about mass appeal, Right. How many followers do you have? How many listeners do you have? And what's the market penetration yada, 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 which is all very well. And it's certainly necessary if you want to make a living out of it. But if you actually want to do that to help people understand what they're doing, then I think having a huge amount of people doesn't necessarily help you at that. And I think that's a very good point that you made there.
0: So is there an episode or maybe a couple of episodes that you would recommend for a first-time listener?
1: I would like to do, who is Pierre Bourdieu? It's a very early podcast episode that I did in January last year. And if I may bore you with a bit of a background story, with this is because I did a language course in Paris in 2019. And uh, I was a beginner. And I thought I'd be brave and go to a software meetup. And there was this guy talking about Pierre Bourdieu. Actually, it was announced as a meetup to talk about sociology and software development. And I thought, I've never had a meetup from software engineers on that subject. And so there was uh, Fabien Lamarck uh, talking about Pierre Bourdieu and the kind of lessons that we can learn from uh, sociology in terms of team structures and power structures within teams and how things get done. And I thought, I found that really inspiring. So after a while, I reached out to him. I was brave enough. And he kindly agreed to this interview. And there's a moment, a funny moment, towards the end of the podcast where he recommends that we hire anarchists. And I thought that was quite funny. I think he meant this as a joke, but who knows? So that's one thing that I would listen to. There is another episode that I quite enjoyed, and it's about from research to startup. And it's with people who took their idea, their PhD idea, and thought, well, we're going to do this and turn this into a business. And at the same time, I interviewed somebody from an organisation that helps researchers set up their own business. They're not a venture capitalist. They call themselves Conception X. They help people prepare presentations and how to approach people, and they try to connect them with the relevant people to drive idea forward. And it was quite interesting to actually see the enthusiasm of the guys actually talk about their research ideas and what that could mean as a business and then talk about the ceo Riam Kanso from this organization about how they go about it and how they could help researchers i thought that was quite interesting there's one which actually got a number of hits it's called this real software tangled mess with derek jones who wrote a blog post which i think made quite the round on the rc slack channel earlier this year so you may want to listen to that one too
0: Fantastic. I'll make sure to link those in the show notes and I'll make sure to listen to them myself. I want to ask you a question that Ian Cosden asked me because I really liked the question. You have this unique experience of talking to so many different kinds of research software engineers. And have you seen any common threads of experience or sentiments or just something that keeps appearing again across different people?
1: What I've seen is the phrase imposter syndrome, that people say that they feel they're doing a job they're not really supposed to be doing, whether it's they're doing their PhD, but actually they're doing research engineering, or whether they're trying to get a job at university to work on a particular software project or open source project, but it needs to be titled something else. And they felt that they're not really quite in the right place. I thought I found that quite remarkable, and I found that quite often. I don't know about you, if you experienced the same.
0: Definitely. I think the first thing that I answered was that so many people would say something to the effect of, I learned of USRC or this other RRC association, and I found my people. Like I found this place where I have belonging, and it changed my life. And I think the other common thread is just how rocky the path is. It's very rare for people to take the same path to get to where they are now. There is no established path. You know, you can't go to graduate school and get a PhD in research software engineering or even a concentration. It's just not a thing.
1: No, it still isn't. You're right. I mean, there may be roles out there, but there's no career path that leads up to it. And very often, there still isn't a career path once you got there. I mean, that is one of the things that is a bit of a worry. I mean, let's face it, the market for software engineers is hot, as it's probably ever been. And people can have the options. So how do you retain the very qualified and often very motivated people in the roles that we have in universities? We should feel very privileged to keep these people. And I think we need to work very hard to keep them. And I'm not quite sure we're doing enough there. 100%.
0: I had a change of role in February of 2021. And it it was because of that reason that I didn't have a means to grow. I didn't have a next step. I didn't have that structure around me. So it is incredibly important. So still on this same thread, have you seen common challenges people have identified? And also, you can kind of reflect on this from your own perspective. What are some Mm. of the remaining challenges for our community? How do you hope the world will change in the next maybe five years?
1: I think I go back to recognition. It strikes me as odd that still 100 years later, or more even, that the main output from research is still the paper. Right. And the software that actually leads up to it and very often plays an absolutely integral part in getting to the data and driving the conclusions that you put in there gets sidelined or gets mentioned somewhere in the reference section. If you're very lucky, it gets mentioned in the methodology, right? So there's a bit of a disconnect there. And then also the fact that how do we make sure that the software that actually works the way that we intended to in order to get to the result that we report in that paper that then gets published in a prestigious journal. So and I think that's where I like to see research software engineering playing a central role in this because we are the ones who very often write the software, right? And who guide the people who write the software when they're doing it ourselves to ensure that they do the right thing, that there's testability, there's reproducibility, and there's accountability for the way that software is written. I think it is a hugely important role. There's also, I think, an increased focus on infrastructure, I believe. You know, with increased demand of software solutions in research, there needs to be the infrastructure to actually make that happen, you know, whether that is on-premise solutions in universities or whether it's cloud-based solutions. So I think there's a huge area that research software engineering hope will play an essential role in future. and I'm quite optimistic because there are a number of initiatives actually pointing in that direction.
0: So we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. How has the transition to remote work been for you? And do you hope that any of these changes will persist, even if we ever get out of this pandemic?
1: I think for me, it's been actually quite positive. You were asking about what's the difference between private sector and public sector. And the one thing that I haven't mentioned, actually, is the office environment, right? So when you work in the private sector, very often you work in large offices. I mean, it's de facto style, the open plan office. And I think you mentioned you looked at the Facebook office at the time. So when they were still in Palo Alto, I don't know where they are these days. I sat in offices with 200 other developers. And let me tell you, it's no fun because you only survive with a headset and background noise in it. Even pre-pandemic, we started to work part-time at home. So on Fridays at Elsevier and then later on Mondays and Fridays. But then when I was thrown into working from home remotely, I really discovered that all that headspace that suddenly is free and I can actually focus on something and I don't have to fend off noise and distractions and I don't have to be careful when I have a phone conference or a video conference with someone to distract and disturb the neighbors. I think it was a huge relief for me. Yes, there was the social element that we miss in work and the kind of Zoom social meetings that don't really work that well. I know some people try different tools like GatherTown. They work a little bit better, but I think face-to-face social meetings still beat remote face-to-face meetings on a social basis. But I think work-wise, for me, it was a good outcome. I appreciate that not everybody is the same so in our group it's actually fairly split so some people prefer to work remotely mainly and other people work to prefer to work mainly in the office so I am definitely in, in the remote camp
0: I definitely am as well so we're coming up on time I have mm-hmm. just two more questions mm-hmm. So I am incredibly uncultured. I don't travel. I have no idea what it's like to live in London. So I would love to ask you, what is it like to live in London?
1: If you like big cities, then I think it definitely is a place to be because it has so much to offer. Once you start living there, you may lose sight of it. But the sheer diversity of things that you can encounter, where you go to, the people that you meet, So sometimes when I cycle to work across Blackfriars Bridge with a view of St. Paul's, it really drives tears into your eyes. At least sometimes, maybe I'm a little bit sentimental, but I thought it was really breathtaking. You know, the beauty of it, the diversity of it, the buzz. You gotta love big cities though, because it sometimes get get very crowded, right? Sir? and sometimes you do a little bit of a slalom when you walk on the pavement, <laughs> because otherwise you bump into people all the time. But I get a lot out of that, to be honest. And I'm not taking that for granted because yeah, you know, when I go elsewhere and see how life can be in a different way, in a different environment, then I quite appreciate that what London has to offer.
0: So when you aren't recording, editing, or programming, or taking a bike ride, what do you like to do in your free time?
1: Oh, I'm actually learning French. I came to that quite late. I didn't learn French until 2018. It was because of a friend of mine who is retired, and he decided that he already spoke French very well, and to go to France and spend two or three months there learning French and enhancing his French skills. And I thought, why don't I do the same thing? I'm not that widely traveled either. So before that, I've been, I don't think I've ever been to Paris, actually, until 2018. It was a revelation. So learning of language is really an adventure. I mean, not the grammatical bits. I mean, the grammar can be a little bit tedious, but sort of get your head around the language, how people express themselves, learning about different cultures. So I do that quite a lot. And I socialize. So, yeah, I have friends that uh, I'd like to see as often as I can and read a lot.
0: Peter, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you today. I'm so glad that you agreed to come on the show. I feel like we've come full circle being able to talk to you. And it's a joy to hear that you're thriving during the pandemic and that your podcast is doing great. I will say that I am excited to see what the future holds for, you know, not just our podcast, but for our community.
1: So do I. And all the best, Vanessa. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thanks, Peter.